Well, we have begun a new sermon series focused on the theme of spiritual growth. It's very important. We know that a person who does not grow physically or emotionally or socially will be stunted in a variety of different ways, and that's true spiritually as well. The whole purpose of the Christian life is that we might grow up into maturity so that we might become the fullest version of ourselves. And I'll tell you another reason why this is important. There's a whole lot of people, I think, in New York who don't know where they stand spiritually. And it's only as you look at what the Bible says about spiritual growth that you realize you may not be a Christian at all because the qualities and the characteristics that you would attribute to spiritual growth are not evident in your own life. And I I think that's especially true in New York. There's a lot of people who would identify themselves as Christians because their parents were believers or maybe because they were baptized or this is how they were raised. Or people might call themselves Christians simply by default. They look around, they say, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, so I guess I'm a Christian. But it's only as we look at what spiritual growth entails that we realize that we have not even taken the first step. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, if I could put it simply, I would say a Christian is someone who undergoes a transfer of trust. You transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus for your standing, your acceptability before God. You're no longer relying on yourself, you're relying on Jesus. That's what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. And when that happens, the power of God comes into your life. You're now personally, powerfully, permanently connected to Jesus, and you can never be the same again. So we started out by considering the stages of growth. As a Christian, you go through a number of different developmental stages, and we identified them like this. We said a new Christian is a a baby, a brand new baby Christian. A growing Christian is an adolescent. And then a mature Christian is someone who has reached a higher stage of development. But here's the catch. A mature Christian rarely knows that they're mature. And if you think that you're a mature Christian, you're probably not. Now, if you've got questions about those stages of growth, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon online if you missed it last week. But today I'm going to turn from the stages of growth to the engine of growth. What actually propels the Christian life? And you might think, well, the answer is doing your religious duty, practicing spiritual disciplines, hard work and effort. But no, that's not it. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, kicking off the Reformation, do you know what the very first thesis was? Come on, European history couldn't have been that long ago. Thesis number one, change the world. What was it? Thesis number one, do you know what he said? All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Now, if you stop and think about it, that should sound a little strange. It sounds odd. It sounds a little dark. It sounds as if uh, Martin Luther's being bleak because it seems as if he's saying that we never really make any progress in the Christian life. All of life is repentance. You hear that and you think, well, I guess this is just the way it is. We constantly live in this gloomy state of despairing over our sin and feelings of guilt and shame and remorse. But that's not what Martin Luther is saying. He's not saying all of life is repentance because we never make any progress in the Christian life. Rather, he's saying repentance is the way in which 
we make progress in the Christian life. Repentance and faith is the engine that drives the Christian life. So we could think of repentance and faith as the engine, the combustion cycle, the dynamic that propels our growth in grace. Now, I'm not a mechanical guy, but let's see if I can get this right. Think of an engine with two pistons. When the fuel in one chamber combusts, it it sends that first piston down, while the opposing piston shoots up in the opposite direction. And as the other piston comes up, it compresses a mixture of fuel and air, and that's what sets up the next cycle of combustion. And so as the two pistons fire up and down, they turn the crankshaft, look at that, I knew that, the crankshaft inside the engine, and that is what creates the rotational energy and propels the vehicle forward. I'm going to start teaching physics in my side hustle. All right, so repentance and faith are the two pistons that fire up and down, and those Two pistons, repentance and faith, have to be constantly firing in order to propel our growth in grace. That's the engine that enables us to grow. So today I'd like us to take a closer look at how to keep that engine running. And we're going to turn to Luke chapter 7, and as we do, I'd like us to consider three things. First of all, what is this engine of growth? Two, how does it work? And three, where do we get it? So what, how, and where? What is this engine of growth? How does it work, and where do we get it? So if you'd like, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 7. You'll find this passage printed in your order of worship. It's also found on page 864 in the Pew Bible. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? 
Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And therefore, we pray, despite the weakness of your messenger, that the same spirit who once inspired these words will illuminate them now so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, what is the engine of growth? The answer is repentance and faith. But what do we mean by that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word repent, this is what I think of. I think of the man in the subway station wearing the sandwich board that says, repent, for the end is nigh. And whenever I see one of those folks, I tend to think this person must not be fully right in the head. You know, they must be a little extreme, definitely alarmist. They're playing off of people's fears, warning them against some kind of impending doom. So I don't know about you, but we probably all have our misunderstandings of what the word repent means. So what is it? Well, technically, it comes from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means to think again. To repent simply means to change your mind, to pull a U-turn in your thinking. If you merge onto the highway and then you realize that you're in the wrong lane and you're headed directly into opposing traffic, there's a couple things you could do. One is see how good you are at dodging the cars coming at you. But probably the best thing to do would be to stop immediately, pull a U-turn, and start heading in the opposite direction. And that is what it means to repent. It means to change our mind about God and to turn towards God with our whole lives. Now, a couple months ago, or a couple weeks ago, I should say, I preached on the parable of the prodigal son. And what does the prodigal son do? Well, eventually, he comes to his senses, And he changes his mind. And so he turns back. He turns back from the far country and he heads back towards his father. Now, I've said that the engine of growth is repentance and faith. Those are the two pistons that are constantly firing, which drive the Christian life. And so the first thing that I want to show you is that repentance and faith always go together. You could think of them as like two sides of the same coin, You never have repentance without faith, and you never have faith without repentance. So when we repent, we turn away from sin and self, and we turn towards Jesus in faith. They always go together. They're connected. You can never have one without the other. And in the parable of the prodigal son, notice what the father does. He runs out to his son and embraces him. He throws his arms around him before, before, not after, the son even has a chance to say, I'm sorry. And what that shows us is that the promise of God's forgiveness not only comes first, but the promise of God's forgiveness is what makes repentance possible in the first place. We would never even think of turning back to God unless we knew that he was waiting for us with open arms. Would you ever repent? Would you ever turn back towards God if you thought that he was going to judge and condemn you? No, it's the promise of his forgiveness that makes repentance possible. That's what makes you want to repent. Now, not everybody understands this. Some people think, well, you could never really come to truly trust in Jesus unless you first feel really, truly, deeply sorry for your sin. And in that case, they put repentance first. Repentance comes first. 
and then the promise of his forgiveness and grace. But that is both mistaken and unhelpful. And this is how the pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it. We may tend to think that scripture teaches that repentance precedes faith in our experience. On occasion, that position is outlined something like this. We'll never come to trust in Christ until we feel sorry for our sins. So repentance must always be first. But that is mistaken and unhelpful thinking. Mistaken because it confuses repentance with conviction of sin. And unhelpful because it tends to promote the view that a fixed degree of repentance is necessary as a kind of qualification for faith. But this is evidently not the position of the New Testament. Conviction is not repentance. And in any case, the deepest levels of conviction may be experienced after rather than before conversion. In fact, there's a sense in which we must think of the relationship between repentance and faith the other way around. Repentance can only be truly genuine when it is based on faith in God and in his word. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's suggesting that we can turn repentance into a kind of work. We might say that if our repentance is deep enough, if our conviction over sin is strong enough, well, then we can qualify ourselves for God's forgiveness and grace. But no, we do not qualify ourselves. He offers his sheer grace His grace comes first, and that's what enables our forgiveness and makes it possible in the first place. Now, of course, it's true that repentance and faith is the way in which you begin the Christian life. At some point, at some point, whether it is a single conscious moment or the result of a long, gradual process, at some point, you turn away from sin and self, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus because of what he's accomplished for you through his life and his death and his resurrection. But what I'm suggesting here is that repentance and faith is the engine, the ongoing engine of the Christian life. It's not only only the way in which you begin, but it's the way in which you make progress. It's the way in which you grow as a Christian. So that brings me to my second question. How exactly does this work then? How does this engine run? Well, let me suggest two wrong ways and one right way. Two wrong ways, one right way. Wrong way number one is the way of the legalist. And this brings me back to our passage today. So Jesus is invited for dinner at the home of a respected religious leader named Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's a pillar within the community. They're probably eating in some outer courtyard. And an unnamed woman of the city learns that Jesus is at this meal, and she busts in on the dinner party. And then she proceeds to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, to dry them with her hair, and she anoints his feet with an extremely expensive perfume. And Simon, the religious leader, sees all this happening, and he starts thinking to himself, well, if Jesus was truly a man of God, he would know who this woman is, what kind of a woman she is. But the implication is, though it doesn't say this in the text, that he's thinking if Jesus knows who this woman is and what kind of a woman she is, and he's letting her do this, well, then that's even worse. But Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. And so he says to Simon, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. Now, if Jesus proceeds to tell you a story, you know you're in trouble. 
Hey, Simon, I want to tell you a story. So Jesus comes up with this short little parable. He says, imagine a man who has two debtors. One owes him 50 denarii, the other owes him 500 denarii. And he forgives the debt of both. Which one will love him more? And Simon responds, well, I, I suppose the one who had the larger debt forgiven. He answers correctly, but it leaves him cold. And then Jesus turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon, when I arrived, you didn't provide me with any water to wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to cover my feet with kisses. She loves me. You don't. She has been forgiven much, and therefore she loves much. The one who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, what is Jesus trying to say to Simon? What's he trying to get across? Is he saying that Simon is better than she is because he's more moral and therefore he has less that needs to be forgiven? Or is he flipping things around as we might do in the modern world in which we live and say, well, she's actually better than he is because she's more honest and authentic and he's a hypocrite? No, what Jesus is saying is that she has more love and more joy in her life because her repentance is deeper. She knows the size of her debt and that's what changes everything. So you see, Simon represents the way of the legalist. Now, how would a legalist think about repentance? Well, a legalist would think repentance is for bad people or it's for good people but only in bad times. So, of course, yes, you have to repent and believe the gospel at the very beginning in order to become a Christian, but then after that, repentance is simply reserved for the bad times, when you really screw up or do something wrong. So Simon's the kind of person who would say, well, yes, I remember I might have had to repent back in November when I had a serious lapse, but, you know, other than that, I haven't really needed to repent. So the legalist thinks that you can repent less and less over time. Now, this is therefore how the legalist thinks about spiritual growth. This is admittedly simplistic, but let me paint a picture in your mind here. You could draw one line up top, and you could say that this line represents God's holiness. This is God's standard of, of perfection. And then you could draw another line underneath that, and that line represents our fallen, sinful human condition. And between those two lines, you could draw a cross, and you could say that, that the cross covers the gap that Jesus has covered the gap between God's holiness and our sin through his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's how we can be reconciled to God despite our sin. But if you're a legalist, you think, well, that might be where we start out. But if I want to progress in the Christian life, I have to rely on my hard work to try to close the gap. So I can do my duty as a religious person. I can adopt spiritual disciplines. And through my hard work and effort, I can help reduce the gap between God's holiness and my sin. And when you operate that way, you start to think that, well, God loves me more when I'm doing well, and he loves me less when I'm not. So you've got good days and bad days. You might think, well, on Saturday, I said my prayers, and I read my Bible, and I avoided sin, so God must have been listening to my prayers on Saturday. But on Monday, you know, I backslid a little bit. I, I, I didn't read the Bible. I didn't pray. And, 
you know, I had uh, a few setbacks in terms of how I lived my life. So does God listen to you more on Saturday and less on Monday? See, when you think that you can close the gap through your religious performance, you turn your religious performance into a spiritual treadmill. And when you turn your religious performance into a spiritual treadmill, one of two things can happen. Have you ever been on a treadmill when it's going a little bit faster than you can keep up with? What happens? Well, it can be a little comical, right, as you find yourself falling farther and farther back on the treadmill. And that happens spiritually, right? If we can't keep up with the expectations of how we think we're supposed to live, it can lead us to feel disillusioned and defeated. But if, by contrast, we feel like we're doing a good job of completing our religious duty and practicing our spiritual disciplines and we're able to avoid all major sins, well, then we can start to feel a little superior and proud compared to everybody else who doesn't live up to the same standards or who isn't as committed of a Christian as we are. And so we can oscillate, therefore, between these feelings of inadequacy and despair when we fail or pride and superiority when we're doing well. But here's the real problem. The legalist assumes that you can close that gap between God's holiness and your sin by your hard work and effort, but then as you do, what do you do? You shrink the cross. You shrink the cross. It leads you to think that you don't need the work of Jesus on his cross as much as you did before. You need the cross less because there's less that needs to be forgiven. And if there is less that needs to be forgiven, then there's less reason to love Jesus. And that's why legalism always leads to spiritual deadness. Legalism always leads to spiritual deadness. If you're running on that spiritual treadmill, it's going to result in either joyless, defeated Christians who are falling farther and farther behind, or it will lead to joyless, self-righteous, critical, judgmental, condemning Christians because you feel like you're hitting all your goals. But either way, you're joyless. It leads to dead spirituality. And so you see, hard work and effort that doesn't spring from a love for Jesus for what he's first done for us will not sanctify you, it will strangle you. So that's wrong way number one. Wrong way number one is the way of the legalist. Wrong way number two is the way of the inspirationalist. Now I'll be a little more brief about this, but let me explain what I mean. What do I mean by an inspirationist? Well, if a legalist is someone who takes God's law seriously, but not God's love, an inspirationist would be someone who takes God's love seriously, but not his law. So an inspirationist would say, well, I believe that God loves me because I believe that God loves and accepts everyone. God loves and accepts us unconditionally as we are, and therefore God would never ask you to change anything in your life. You're perfect just the way you are. And therefore, the the God of the inspirationist says, well, just do whatever feels good. You should just do whatever comes naturally to you in order to be your true authentic self. And I think increasingly in our modern world, we have been associating spontaneity with spirituality. We think that whatever comes to us spontaneously must be truly spiritual. 
which is odd because why would we think that reading, reflecting, or praying wouldn't lead to an authentic spiritual experience? But for some reason, within our culture today, we associate spontaneity with true spirituality. So the inspirationist says, just do whatever feels good. God would never ask you to do anything to change yourself. In order to be authentic, you've got to do whatever comes naturally. So the inspirationist fails to see that there is a standard by which God calls us to live because he knows how life works best. So let me give you an example of how an inspirationalist would make a moral decision. This kind of person might say, well, I know that the Bible is clear and tells us that we should do X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to do it because I've prayed about it and I feel peace about it. I know it goes against what the Bible has to say, but I'm not going to bother following that because I've prayed about it and I feel peace about it. Right, the Bible says you shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal, but I'm not worried about that. Or the Bible might say uh, you shouldn't enter into this relationship, but I'm going to do it anyway because I prayed about it and I feel peace about it. Now, what's going on here? I can't tell you how many people I have spoken with who would say, well, I'm basing my decisions on my own subjective feelings rather than what God might have said. I mean, what does it even mean to say, I felt peace about it after praying about it? But that's how sometimes we operate. And so when it comes to repentance, the legalist repents less and less because he or she thinks there's less to repent of, but the inspirationalist never repents at all because there's nothing to repent of. And you see, we need to be careful here because, as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. We human beings, if we want to, we can justify anything, I promise you. You can justify anything if you want to. We find all kinds of ways to minimalize and to rationalize the things that we've done. So if wrong way number one is the way of the legalist and wrong way number two is the way of the inspirationalist, what's the right way? The way of the true Christian. Well, a legalist emphasizes God's law but not his love. The inspirationalist emphasizes God's love but not his law. So what's the true Christian supposed to do? Choose between law and love? Try to strike the perfect balance between the two? Mix them together in some muddled mixture? No. The true Christian affirms both God's law and his love, stretching to both extremes at the very same time. So if you want to know the secret to the Christian life, here's how it works. Here's how this engine goes. You start out with a certain degree of understanding of God's standard of holiness and your sinful human condition. And out of an awareness of God's mercy to you in Christ, out of the promise to forgive and restore you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you by his grace, you repent you turn away from sin and self and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, but that's only the beginning. You can't stop there. Now, if you, if you thought that God's view of you would decrease based on your religious performance and every time you fall short of that standard, you could never really face up to the truth of who you really are. It'd be too threatening. But you see, it's the promise of God's ongoing love that enables you to take an honest look at your own heart and your own life. And that is why, over time, 
unlike the legalist, the true Christian becomes more aware of the depth of your sin and the height of God's holiness. The gap between you becomes greater in your mind because the true Christian not only repents of their actions that might be wrong, but also their attitudes. The Christian pays attention to not just whether or not you're lying, cheating, or stealing, but do you have a critical spirit? Are you resentful? Are you ang- anxious? Are you judgmental and condemning? Are you, pr- are you proud or selfish? And not only that, the, the Christian not only repents of the bad things that you do, but also the good things that you do for all the wrong reasons. Because a Christian realizes, well, sometimes the reason why I do my religious duty or the reason why I do my spiritual disciplines or the reason why I try to live in accordance with God's standards is because I'm just trying to get leverage over God. I'm really, at bottom, trying to manipulate and control God. I want God to be obligated to have to bless me and to make my life go well because I did my duty. And that is why a true Christian repents not only of the bad things that they do, but also the good things that they do for all the wrong reasons. Only a Christian can repent of one's righteousness. And that is why in our prayer of confession today, we said that we need to repent even of our repentance. Even our confession is stained with sin. We need our tears to be washed. A legalist could never say such a thing. Only a Christian could say, I know that even my confession is tainted with sin. So as a Christian grows, a a Christian moves in the opposite direction of the legalist. Rather than repenting less and less, a true Christian repents more and more because you progressively realize that the gap between you and God is not shrinking, it's growing. And I can prove this. I can prove that this is the case in, in authentic Christian experience. If you were to put in chronological order the statements that the Apostle Paul makes about himself, you will see the dynamic that is true in every Christian heart. See, if you start out at the beginning of Paul's ministry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how does Paul refer to himself? He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. So if you take that small select group of people that were divinely commissioned and authorized by Jesus himself to speak and act on his behalf. uh, Paul says, within that small group of people, I'm the least of the apostles. You know, count me last among the 12. But then a little bit later in Paul's life, in Ephesians chapter three, he says, I'm the least of all God's people. So now he widens the circle. He's not just talking about the apostles, he's talking about all God's people, all Christians, everyone who's united to Jesus by faith. He says, I'm the least of them all. But then at the very end of Paul's life, it's astounding what he says. First Timothy chapter one, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of all offenders. Now, how can Paul say that? Does Paul simply have a morbid conscience? Is is he simply dealing with low self-esteem? Do we need to sign him up for a self-esteem course? No. He's not delusional. He's seeing more and more of reality. He's seeing himself for who he really is. He sees the depth of sin within his own heart. And that's true of all authentic Christian experience. The closer you draw to an all-holy God, the more, the more painfully aware you become of your own sinfulness. So the more you see yourself for who you really are, the more you realize you have to repent of. So in the Christian life, if you want to grow, the way up is down. 
The way up is down. The way you grow is by realizing how much more you have to repent of. And that's why the author and pastor, Jack Miller, used to put it like this. He used to say, cheer up. You're worse than you think. But you see, that's the engine that drives the Christian life. When you realize that the gap between you and God is even greater over time than you've realized at first, what does that do to the cross? It doesn't shrink it. No, the cross grows. And you realize that Jesus' love for you is even deeper, more expansive than you'd ever thought before. Your awareness of his love, your appreciation for it, grows over time. So rather than repenting less and less, you repent more and more. And ironically, that is the secret to unlocking the love and joy in your life. Let's say you do something that you didn't think you were ever capable of. Do you realize that when people are involved in a hit-and-run accident, for example, somebody hits somebody by, uh, by accident and then they run away from the scene, almost everyone will say, I had no idea. I had no idea that I was this much of a coward. So let's say you do something you didn't think that you were even capable of doing. It might come as a shock and a surprise to you. It probably will. But here's the point. It doesn't come as a shock and a surprise to Jesus. He knew it before, not after he went to the cross for you. So you see, when we take an honest look at ourselves and we actually see our hearts in all their ugliness, and then we confess our sin, that becomes an opportunity to experience ever greater joy because with every sin we confess, we know that no matter how deep our sin, his grace to us is deeper still. So we need to remember that whenever we scorn his love, whenever we try his patience, whenever we make the same mistakes over and over again, whenever we do that one thing that we said we would never do or we said we would never do again, it never comes as a shock or a surprise to him. You see, his grace means there's nothing that you could do to make God love you more and there's nothing that you could do to make him love you less because his love for you in Jesus Christ is fixed. It doesn't fluctuate or change. The decisive factor is not your past and your present performance, but rather Jesus' past and his performance. He embraces you because of what he's done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. So the more you realize what Jesus has done, the more you realize how willing he is to forgive you, the more your love for him grows. And the more your love grows, the more that strengthens your resolve to want to live your life for him, no matter what he asks. And that is precisely what weakens the impulse to do anything that is contrary to God's heart or to his purposes. So you see, a legalist repents only when they have to only under duress, only in order to get God to listen to you and answer your prayers, but a Christian repents as often as possible because the more you see yourself for who you are and your need for his grace, the more you tap into that union that you experience with Jesus by faith, and that is the key to your growth. So if repentance and faith is the engine that drives the Christian life, and if that's how it works, where do we find the power to do it? And let me just say very honestly, on a personal level, this is what I'm dealing with right now. I know all these things intellectually up here in my mind. I preach about them. But how do I get them from up here in my mind to down here in my heart? Why is it so hard for me to look myself in the mirror? 
why is it so hard to confront the, the reality of my own heart? And I'll tell you, I think the answer is because deep down, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure that Jesus really loves me despite who I am and what I've done. And I would suggest that's true of all of us. You know, there are some who would read verse 47 as if it is saying that Jesus forgave this woman because she loved much. So we might think that, well, perhaps we could earn God's forgiveness through the depth of our love or through the sincerity of our confession, but that can't be right. That can't be right based on the parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells the parable to say that the forgiveness comes first and the love comes after. Forgiveness not only precedes, but it enables our repentance. It not only comes first, but it makes our repentance possible. You see, his God's love is God's love is always out in front of us. God's kindness, as Paul says in Romans 2, is meant to lead us to repentance. And if that's true, if God's love comes first and his love is meant to lead us to repentance, then it means that even our repentance is a gift. We could never do it without him. This is how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, it is the grace of God which teaches us to fear as well as relieves our fears. Only when we turn away from looking at our own sin to look at the face of God, to find his pardon and grace, do we begin to repent. Only by seeing that there is grace and forgiveness with him would we ever dare to repent and thus return to the fellowship and presence of the Father. This is why in the New Testament, repentance is seen as a gift of the gospel which comes to us through Christ. It is, says Paul, the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. The law may lead to conviction, exposing a sense of guilt and need as it did also in Paul's experience. But only when grace appears on the horizon, offering forgiveness with the sunshine of the love of God, will the sunshine of the love of God melt our hearts and draw us back to him. You see, what Jesus is trying to show us through this whole episode in the house of Simon the Pharisee is that the one who is forgiven little loves little. But the one who is forgiven much loves much. And that's the dynamic that drives the Christian life. The more that we are assured of God's love for us in Christ, the more that we can confront the reality of who we are without fear. And as we confess all the ways in which we fall short of who we're supposed to be, not only in action but in attitude, not only the bad things that we do, but even the good things that we do for all the wrong reasons, well, then our love for Jesus grows when we know that he's forgiven us for even this, even this. And as our love grows, we find our desire to, to repent and believe increases. We don't repent less and less, we repent more and more, and we do so not because we have to, but because we want to. And the more we experience the depth of his grace, the more we strive to love and serve and please and obey God, not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but out of gratitude and joy for what he has first done for us. So you see, this is the engine that drives the Christian life. We never move beyond it to something else. All of life, all of life is repentance. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that you would meet us this day 
And whether we might lean more in the direction of the legalist or the inspirationalist, we would pray that you would show us what does it mean to be a true Christian who lives by repentance and faith. We thank you for the promise of your forgiveness offered to us freely through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to see how much more you have forgiven us than we ever realized so that we might learn to love you more. The one who has forgiven little loves little, but the one who has forgiven much loves much. Help us to live into that much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.